You're listening to High Temperature Times, a podcast giving you a short glimpse into the wild world of refractories. My name is Griffin Patterson, and I'm an application specialist with Harbison Walker International. I'm happy to say that HTT is now one year old. We've talked about some really fascinating refractory topics over the last year, and we've got another 12 months of great talks coming up. This month, we're going behind the scenes of the refractory lining to talk about anchors. And if we're going to do that, we'll need the assistance of Advanced Engineering Manager, Ray Mixick. However, you know what comes first. We're going to root around in our bag of questions from our technical marketing inbox. If you'd like to ask a question for the podcast, reach out to us at technical-marketing at thinkhwi.com and use the subject line podcast. We know you've got them, so let them rip. This month's question comes from John DeBornak. John asks, how are refractory ceramic fiber products affixed to the shell? Great question and very fitting for this podcast episode. RCF products like Inswool come in a few flavors, blanket, board, and folded modules. Each one is affixed in different ways. I'll try and keep it brief, so feel free to reach out to us for more information on any of these. Blanket can be affixed a few different ways. The main way is with an ins twist or handlock anchor. This anchor is basically a thin, flat bar with ridges that is welded to the shell and it pierces through the blanket. On the hot face, either a special flat rectangular washer or a ceramic cup lock is pushed onto the anchor, securing the anchor in place. They all hold together kind of like a zip tie. Alternatively, blankets can be held in place using a base and a perpendicular tine. The base pierces through the blanket and the tine goes through the top of that base perpendicularly, holding the blanket down. Ceramic fiber board can be affixed by either coating the side of it with mortar or by welding an anchor onto the furnace wall to peg the board onto. Modules are put onto the wall in a similar way to blankets. Stainless steel studs are tack welded onto the furnace wall before the modules are stuck through them. Once affixed, a threaded nut is screwed on to keep them in place. Again, that was a very abridged version, but thank you, John, for providing such a deep and important question. We now return to your regularly scheduled programming. Anchors. They're kind of like the suspenders of the refractory industry, right, Ray? Uh, In general, yes. All monolithic refractory materials need to be secured to the furnace, uh, and this is accomplished by the use of anchors. Depending upon the furnace operating temperature, the anchors are either metallic or ceramic, in other words, brick. Right, yeah. I guess we, we shouldn't skip over your introduction. You've got a rich history, and I can't let that go unnoticed. So can you tell us a little bit about your background with uh, HWI? Sure, you could say that. I've been fortunate enough to make a career in the refractory world, recently achieving 41 years here at HWI, including time spent in engineering, sales, and many moons ago, a short stint working in manufacturing at our Wyndham, Ohio plant. Well, I guess looking at engineering drawings all day really drilled the anchor knowledge into you. Do you get to go out and look at the finished vessels that you draw up every day? Uh, Not so much in my current position as the manager of the engineering department, but I did have numerous opportunities while wearing my sales hat. Uh, Job site visits truly bring perspective to what is depicted on drawings. At times, the sheer magnitude of a furnace size cannot be envisioned looking at lines drawn on a sheet of paper. I've been awestruck a few times. The site visits also help to better understand what contractors encounter trying to install our materials. Real-world observations and discussions with contractors have greatly contributed to my knowledge base. Yeah, I think I think it's you had a picture in your actual anchors presentation of a bricked-in manway. Yes, that on, on a drawing, it's just a just a couple lines here and right. there. But when you actually see this thing together and an angled manway coming right. into a, a cylindrical vessel, right? How they actually put that thing together is yeah, some some really astonishing. Some really good uh, cutting 
on things like that. Yeah, just and like I said, vessel size. You know, the, the uh, two of the ones that come to mind is we supply materials to a what they refer to as a rotary hearth furnace, and I was in there with my boss at the time. We were walking around this vessel early on in the installation. And the, just the size of this furnace, it looks like a donut. If you look down from the top of the furnace, it looks like a donut. And the floor rotates. The material comes in in one position, rotates almost 360, and goes back out another hole in the floor. And it gets heated as it goes around the circle. This donut was, was ridiculous how big it was. You could drive trucks inside, inside the donut hole. And the furnace itself, you could probably play football. You could probably play 11-11 football inside the furnace. And I'm wondering, why is this thing so humongous? It was ridiculous how big that furnace was. And in a stack up just north of Pittsburgh, we put a couple of reheat furnaces in there. And the stack just exhausting the gas off the furnace, the off gas. It was so huge that it would have cost them an arm and a leg uh, and it was gunned in. It was a gunned in lining for the stack lining refractory. And just to build scaffolding, this stack had to be a couple hundred feet tall. And just to build that scaffolding all the way up <clears throat> to then dismantle it as you're gunning and coming back down would have cost them an arm and a leg and, and time. What they did is they put a, a crane across the top of the furnace with a, a long enough, and they put, they called it a dance floor. They built a floor that was floating basically. Guys got on it at the bottom every day. They would raise it up to whatever level they were working at for them to gun that day and, and then lower them back down when they were done. So they referred to it as a dance floor, basically a floating floor. I never gathered myself to get on the dance floor and watch <laughs> them. I, I stayed I stayed off the dance floor. They're just a, a little bit bigger than your typical A1 piece of paper, huh? Oh, my God, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yep, yep. Crazy. <clears throat> Well, I digress. As much as I would love to tout our advanced engineering department skills and abilities, we're here to talk about anchors. So why don't you start by dusting off your dictionary and tell us what anchors are. Since this is a refractory podcast and not a Mariner one, I'm assuming that we're not talking about the ones that get tattooed next to the word mom. There you go. That's correct. <laughs> as I stated before, anchors in a refractory stance are used to secure monolithic refractory materials to a furnace shell and come in a large variety of uh, sizes and shapes. And for clarity, as you mentioned earlier, they come in two flavors, metallic and refractory. Can you speak a little bit on that? Correct. Yeah, metallic anchors are used when a furnace operates at or below 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, while ceramic anchors, or at times referred to as brick or bottle anchors, are used above 2,000 degrees F, as metallic anchors would soften or even melt. Not a good thing. Keep in mind, though, brick anchors are secured to the furnace shell by use of metallics, such as uh, devices we refer to as C-clips, Z-rods, or ice tongs. In addition, metallic anchors are hidden, as they do not extend to the hot face, while ceramic anchors do extend all the way to the hot face. Therefore, if you were standing inside a finished refractory-lined furnace that was uh, installed with metallic anchors, you would have no idea where those anchors actually are. Uh, whereas if they were ceramic anchors, you would see the faces of every one of those brick anchors, so you know exactly where those anchors are. That's a great point. Does that come into play with repair work, like having to drill, throw through some refractory to open it up for repair work? Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're, most of the times, if they are metal anchors, they're going to be destroyed because if you've been out in the field, when they're removing and replacing refractory, you get a jackhammer out. You know, you're beating on it with a jackhammer. So, yeah, you're going to destroy those metal anchors as, you, as you're removing the refractory. 
and sometimes even the sea cliffs. I mean, the brick anchors are going to get destroyed upon removal, and sometimes the sea cliffs will be damaged as well. Sometimes you can reuse the sea cliffs, but sometimes you can't. Yeah, jackhammers aren't exactly known for their gentle touch. Yeah, and the people using them are not gentle either. <laughs> they're trying to get it off as fast as they can, you know, and they don't care what they're destroying, you know, removing the material. Well, if you've ever spent any time looking at our pocket reference guide, you might see that not only is the anchor section one of the most useful chapters in the book, but it also contains a whole slew of different types of wire anchors. V anchors, S anchors, Tong anchors, and even the astonishing looking Christmas tree anchor. How did they even go about differentiating the need for these various anchors? Can, can you walk me through a couple of them? Sure. There's various steps in an anchor selection, uh, but it all starts with the furnace operating temperature, as I just alluded to previously. Uh, next, you need to look at the total lining thickness and the number of lining components, as many refractory linings consist of multiple layers of different refractory products. A multi-layer refractory lining will use two-piece anchors versus a one-piece anchor, uh, which is used for single component linings. Next, the metallic alloy quality, or the brick anchor brand, is determined again by furnace operate, operating temperature, as well as the furnace atmosphere, which comes into play with ceramic anchors. As there are some what we refer to as bad actors in the atmosphere, like chlorine and fluorine, that limit what brands of our refractory brick anchors will work in those kind of atmospheres. The brand of the monolithic being secured by the anchor is also critical because we like to match the brand of the refractory anchor to the brand of the monolithic refractory that it's being secured to. Uh, for example, if you're using a roughly a 60% alumina castable or gun mix, you want to use a 60% alumina brick anchor that goes with it. You want to try to match those. So thinking about the different shapes of anchor, like if you have a lightweight castable, you would use something like the tong anchor? Uh, the it, it would be a thinner, I'll call it a thinner rod metal anchor okay. for lightweights. And then the, which is like a quarter inch in diameter rod or five sixteenths. And then when you get your dense denser materials if you're still on the metallic anchor side then you can beef that up to three-eighths of an inch and it doesn't sound like a lot but if you were actually holding those two different rod diameters in your hand you would definitely notice the beefier uh, anchor that's made out of a three-eighths rod versus a thinner thinner rod yeah i guess that tracks right you need the additional strength for the heavier refractory right yes correct I, I my mind immediately goes to some of those really amazing applications like aluminum where they're getting like the thirty inch thick linings. Yes. How, yeah. How would you go about anchoring that? Well, in most cases for aluminum, we will be using brick anchors, uh, and but our brick anchors do come to a specific length as well. I think the longest we make a brick anchor is twenty inches. So if we've got a lining that's significantly thicker than twenty inches, which to your point has been the case. Uh, the C-clip, instead of welding the C-clip directly to the shell, you can adjust the C-clip and weld a rod to the back end of that so that the C-clip extends in uh, from the from the shell, uh, providing you a longer assembly length that you would really use in a case like that. Yeah, right. I mean, as, as long as your temperature way back there isn't above 2,000, right. you're fine. Right. And you mentioned Christmas tree anchors earlier. Uh, a key place that we've used those in the past is in rotary kilns, there would be a dam section 
on near the discharge end of a rotary kiln where they want to pull up and build up the product that's being processed. And some of those can become very thick at times as well. And those usually are not as hot and don't require brick anchors. So then we'll put the Christmas tree anchor in and basically Harbison's Christmas tree anchor is designed as a long, call it a long center shank. And then we'll weld smaller standard V anchors onto it in a alternating pattern. So in essence, it kind of looks like a Christmas tree. So since we're talking about proper anchor selection criteria, I, I guess we should expand on your comment earlier for alloy selection, huh? This has always been a kind of an Achilles heel of mine. Uh, after all, I live and breathe ceramic engineering. Metallurgy is just a whole different beast. Yeah, sure. And again, it comes back to being strictly a temperature guide. But in general, uh, the industry tells us that if your operating temperature is going to be around 1600 degrees Fahrenheit, that you can use 304 stainless as your quality. Uh, it jumps up to 1650 degrees. You jump up to 309. Although since the 310 is the next grade up is good to 1700, most of our vendors typically will stock 304 and 310. So a whole lot of 309 is not used, even though it might be a few pennies less. It's the turnaround time and the vendor supply time frame usually is better if you just go with 304 and jump right to 310 and you're going to, getting a better quality anchor anyhow. And then if, if you happen to go up to 2000 degrees F, there are some Inconel flavors out there uh, from a metallic world that will work as well. Yeah, borrowing some really great knowledge from people much wiser than me. The basis of our recommendation for metallic anchors being only 80% of the lining thickness comes largely from the chemical stability of the metallic anchor. You'll hear from many people that you shouldn't use metallic anchors if the operating temperature is above 2000 degrees Fahrenheit, as that exceeds the maximum use temperature of the material, but it's not all peaches and cream below that temperature either. In the temperature range between 1100 and 1800 Fahrenheit, the metallic anchors can undergo a phase transition known as sigma phase embrittlement. The chromium in the stainless steel, responsible for the metal's excellent corrosion resistance, oxidation resistance, and high hot strength, gets depleted from the metallic grains. Sigma phase embrittlement is worst in cyclical conditions, as each cycle reduces the overall oxidation resistance. So continuous service temperatures are not likely to lead to anchor failure due to sigma phase embrittlement, but combined with other stresses and possible failure mechanisms like sulfide attack, reducing the propensity for this to occur can benefit the overall lining lifetime greatly. So what does sigma phase embrittlement and anchor length have to do with each other? Keeping in mind that refractory linings are meant to dissipate heat, if the hot face of the lining reaches 2000 degrees Fahrenheit, the majority of the stainless steel anchor will be seeing temperatures below 1600 degrees Fahrenheit at 80% thickness, where a sigma phase formation is significantly less severe. If the anchors were any longer, they'd just get too hot, but any shorter and they won't support the refractory well enough. Anyways, I apologize for stealing Ray's thunder, but it's a great tidbit of knowledge that I couldn't help but share. Let's get back to it. There are so many ways anchors can be arranged. HWI generally recommends the nice and simple square pattern. Why is that and how is it different from the many other patterns? I believe over the years and initiated before my refractory time, so a long time ago, laugh out loud, anchor spacing and layouts were likely started by a trial and error method until we morphed into where we are today. At times, multiple anchor layouts will work for which HWI has established what we'll call standards. Uh, but always willing to consider alternates brought to the table by our customer or the contractor because they may have their own way that they prefer to do things. 
check out HWI's Little Red Pocket Reference Guide for further instances of how we can lay them out in alternate patterns. So it's it's really just preference, really, in the way in the way that we we instruct our advanced engineering team to draw these things up. Yes, and one one of the things that that's big into the anchor layouts, especially with metal anchors is the, you rotate adjacent metal anchors. You don't want all the anchors to be oriented in the same direction going up a wall or down the wall or vertically. You want to rotate them to each other because we all know mon uh, monolithic refractories are going to crack at some point. And the theory behind it is if all the tines are lined up in one direction, if a crack starts, the tines are going to help propagate it, and that crack's going to continue all the way down the furnace wall. Whereas if you rotate the anchors towards each other, or 90 degrees to each other, 45 degrees towards each other, we hope, in theory, that the crack will stop as it gets to the next anchor. Do we do the same thing for C-clips, for uh, bottle anchors? No, C-clips... Uh, the purpose of the C-clip, again, is to hold the anchor in place, and they are always welded so that the ears of the C-clip are at the 3 o'clock and 9 o'clock position of a brick anchor, so that would typically, when refractories heat up, they're going to want to rise, and this way they the brick anchor can slide within that C-clip vertically without being impeded to, to expand in the C-clip holding it in place, which the C-clip can then put enough stress on that brick and, and crack it. I mean, that, that's always kind of like amazed me for C-clips. I like they, they hold the anchor in place, but allow it to move. Yes. How much is this refractory actually moving? It can, yeah, depending upon our product. Some of our products do expand quite a bit that you have to build into it, into it expansion allowance. Uh, they're most of the, especially monolithic refractories, we will put it in, it will be installed in panels. So there'll be joints every so often. A roll of thumb harvesting uses is 24 square feet. Make a 24 square foot panel of gunned or cast lining, and then there's going to be joints around that. And if the material expands a lot, there'll be a blanket, ceramic fiber blanket or something in those joints to allow the refractory to grow. If it doesn't expand a lot, then it's just a construction joint that's just a, a break in the refractory. Basically, we're telling the castable, we want you to crack here. We don't want you to crack somewhere else. So this is associated with permanent linear change or reversible linear change? It's reversible linear change. Okay. Yes. So the, the bottle anchors and, and, and the C-clips, they're not really moving for the sake of PLC so much. Correct. Or are they? Okay. No, that that's correct. And you don't want the anchor system to be too rigid. If it's too rigid in the, in the refractory, it's trying to support wants to move more than that refractory anchor system is allowing it to move. Then again, you're gonna it will cause problems. Yeah, flexing my uh, material science background a little bit. Uh, higher aluminum materials like uh, like a, a bauxite material will expand more than a lower aluminum material like a fire clay. Yes. Uh, and I know I'm I'm really squeezing you dry on knowledge here, but I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that. Anchors are not only used for monolithic linings like gunites, plastics, and castables. There are also anchor products available for bricks, too. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Briefly, uh, they are referred to as tie-back systems. And basically, they are special brick shapes that are made with notches or slots in them to allow for, again, for a metal clip that would be attached to your furnace shell that would extend into this special brick and help secure it back to a shell. 
and typically these are used if you've got large flat rectangular walls that you don't want to have a complete freestanding wall that is feet high and feet long that the brick is basically sitting in front of that vessel shell. This way periodically we would put one of these tie backs in so there is some means of supporting and holding that brick lining back to the vessel shell. So I picture if even if it's a multi-component lining, it's just that that metal anchor is a little bit longer reaching through the backup and then that's correct onto the, the hot face. The hot face, yeah. It's attached to the hot face brick, yes. And irrelevant of how many layers of refractory are behind it. That's correct. Well, thank you so much, Ray. Anchors are a huge topic with an absolute wealth of knowledge behind it. I'm glad we could share some of that. Before we wrap up, though, I wanted to share a little something-something from a different perspective. You're now all experts on anchoring solutions, but how do you install refractory around anchors? It might sound like a trivial task, but a lot can go wrong. Here's VAS application specialist Scott Salzman with a few tips and tricks on gunning and shot creating refractory around anchors. Your biggest thing when you're spraying around anchors is your air pressure, for one. If you don't have enough air pressure the monolithic's going to stick to the outside of the V-anchor, and then you're going to have a void behind it. So your air pressure is very key uh, when you're spraying. Also, your uh, distance of spraying is a key factor. Uh, you don't want to be too far away. You want to be able to blast it around the anchor, uh, especially bottle anchors. You need to move around the bottle anchor in order to get it to adhere to the anchor and not leave any voids. One of your biggest factors is your trim guy. Your trim guy is going to help you immensely because on a V-anchor, uh, your trim guy can smack that V-anchor if you start to get some buildup on the end of it. He just uh, smacks the anchor. Your stuff that's building up on it, it'll build a ball up on the end, and then you'll start to get a void behind it if you're not careful. Uh, so he can just smack that ball off the end of your V-anchor, and then you just shoot right straight through again. Most of the time, ceramic anchors are all the way out to the face of what you're shot creating. So you got to kind of keep the ends of them trimmed off um, so you don't overshoot. And then you have a ton of rebounded stuff to clean up. So if your trim guy can keep the end of it clean while you're spraying around it, that helps a lot. Saves on saves on material. And you basically got to move around the anchors and... Um, like if you're shooting around an anchor and you start to see it build up, you just move, move over two feet, spray over there while your trim guy cleans up the area, then you can go back to it. It's key factor to have a good second hand in there with you. It's hard to do it by yourself. I've done it by myself before. But um, to knock V anchors off with a broomstick or with a brick hammer, or, uh, we always use a hula hoe. I don't know if you've ever seen a Julio. It's it's actually a hoe you can use in your garden. <laughs> but it's it's a good trimming tool and uh, to knock anchors off and trim trim on the face of ceramic uh, anchors. I mean, as far as your anchor um, spacing goes, it all it all depends on what you're putting on. Gunite's a little different. Shotcrete's a little different. And it, it depends on the material you're spraying and if you're spraying overhead. So if you're spraying overhead, you definitely want a tighter pattern as opposed to spraying a straight wall. If you're spraying a material that doesn't set real fast, you want more anchors 
because you got all that weight hanging. Yeah, I mean, I mean, a lot of our materials are, you know, 160 pounds of cubic foot we spray overhead. So you want it to hang on something tightly knit. But um, ceramic anchors, um, like when I when I was spraying, I would spray all the way around the base of the um, ceramic anchor just to get it built up around the, the base of it against the wall. And then you could build your way out. With a wire anchor, you could basically shoot right straight at it. You don't have to go, you know, in circles around it. You can shoot right straight at a, a wire anchor. And typically, if you got, um, if you have good air pressure, it blows, you know, right past the wire anchor and sticks to the wall. Um, what else? Uh, casting, I've cast a lot of furnaces, cast a lot of tundishes. You definitely need vibrations, so your material will fall around the anchors. So if you're pumping a ton of you pump it from the top part of the wall and it has to fall maybe five feet to get to the bottom. So if you have a lot of anchors in there, you need vibration for that material to fall past the anchors because you only have an inch gap between the form and the end of the anchor. So it's got to pass past the anchor to get to the bottom. So like tundishes, we use, um, we use form vibrators or pencil vibrators or, but same thing. You don't want to leave a void where that anchor's at. You know, that's your biggest thing is if you leave a void, you, your job's, you know, shot because then you got a pocket, you know, you should have six inches of material there. You might have two inches on the outside and then a big four inch pocket behind it, which doesn't make for a good installation. So there it is. When you look at a new monolithic refractory installation, you see a nice smooth surface of refractory ready to support you in the most intense applications, but you don't see what's supporting the refractory. Anchors is just a great topic, showing how much is going on behind the scenes. Thank you, Ray and Scott, for bringing us just a little bit closer to understanding it all. If you'd like to discuss Anchor Technologies more, feel free to reach out to us at technical-marketing at thinkhwi.com. And now that you've been listening to High Temperature Times for a full year, consider leaving us a review on Apple or Google Podcasts. Reviews help us reach more listeners like you. Thanks for listening.